Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Medical school. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today I have got a real treat for you if you're interested in living healthy. I've got one of the sharpest scientists in the United States in the aging field. And his name is James Clement. He has written a book, The Switch, which is going to tell you how to live healthy to be 100. And we're having a real engaging discussion later in the interview about how to go beyond that if you're interested and do it in a, in a healthy way. Uh, but anyway, let me give you a bit of history of James. He's not, he has no formal scientific or medical training. He's a lawyer by trade, but he loves to solve puzzles. And uh, I met him early last year when I contacted uh, a person named Reason who has a blog called Fight Aging. And I was really curious about finding, I was diving deep into analytics and I just needed someone to answer some questions. And Reason suggested I contacted James. And so I invited James over to my house and he lives not too far, he lives in Gainesville. He came down and we literally didn't stop talking for six hours straight. I don't think we ever even stopped for food, <laughs> but it was the, the most engaging conversation I've had for a long, long time. And he's just, he, he, you know, he, he's read 20,000 scientific papers, which is just beyond extraordinary. And that's how he, you know, he gets his information from the researcher. And he's a researcher himself. We'll talk, talk more about that. But uh, I think that's probably enough of an intro, James, without me uh, like messing things up along the way. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Joe. I'm really pleased uh, to be talking with you. And I'll say that I was incredibly impressed with how much effort you take to stay up with the scientific literature and how uh, vast your area of knowledge is. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, that's why we resonated so well, because we have both share similar passions. And, um, and that is to live as long as you can. You, you really uh, are one of the leaders in this field, from my view, and I think... Anyone that doesn't know, know of your worst work is missing the boat. You actually told me at the time we met, I didn't realize there was actually a transporter of the NAD molecule, which is used therapeutically, clinically in whole, not a precursor, but the actual NAD itself. And uh, a superficial review of the literature would suggest it shouldn't work because there's no transporter, but you show, you pointed out where the transporter was. And you know, that really was a game changer for me, but so many other things and so much to talk about, but you wrote this book, because uh, there is a need for people to understand the basics. And you put together a manual that essentially tells people how to alt the switch is the switch between activating mTOR and not activating it, which is, well, we'll go into deep. But, you know, most people are not going to live to 100. That's just the facts. So you, there's no way you're going to live to be 150 if you don't live to be 100 first. So that, that, that's sort of like the kindergarten groundwork that you've got. And you review yeah. 
the primary basics and how to do that, but not just the things that people have been talking about for decades and centuries, but the, the, the new information that we need to know to how to upregulate our mitochondrial function and improve and activate all these important pathways to set the state for the future. That's right. Yeah. So, um, well, why don't you talk about your journey? I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but I think people, it's important to know how you got to this state because, you know, we, it's, the, I know the problem, the challenge with you is to, to not go on a tangent because I want, you know, I want to go straight to the meat. <laughs> we did a lot of that uh, right. yesterday in conversations. Um, for the um, time that I was, can remember, I've always been interested in, uh, longevity, I think it was probably because of the stories my great-grandmother told me, and she was alive until I was like 25 or so. You know, she saw the Wright brothers and um, traveled across the country and in Calistoga wagon, saw Indians, you know, uh, in uh, South Dakota, etc. And, uh, you know, this is the same woman that also saw uh, the, the Gemini, Mercury, Apollo space flights and watched men walk on the moon. And I thought, man, you know, um, in her youth, she never would have imagined these things. What are we going to be able to, to witness a uh, hundred years from now? Uh, and, you know, would never have imagined uh, the technologies and things people would be doing. Um, and um, I just didn't know that there was any sort of field that dealt with this until uh, Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw's book came out in 1982. And I happened to be a third year law student at the time, married to another law student. And as soon as I read the book, which I did in like two days, I said, I'm gonna be a molecular biologist. And she said, no, you aren't. <laughs> but it, uh, 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 in a funny mode, but but it I did um, start reading molecular biology. I became very passionate about keeping up with um, uh, anti-aging science, and um, I was lucky enough in, in 2009 to go on the uh, board of the first direct-to-consumer genome company called Gnome that George Church had uh, co-founded. And George, I, I had my own whole genome sequence in 2009, and George was the scientist who read me my interpretation of my genome. And so we started talking about aging, and I found out that he had this similar passion. And we came up with a project called the Supercentenarian Research Study, and um, that sort of launched my uh, becoming a full-time scientist as opposed to a lawyer and entrepreneur that I've done previously. Yeah, so thank you for mentioning George Church. For those who may not know who he is, uh, you might have seen the 60 Minutes interview that they did with him at the beginning of December, that was last month. And they, uh, it was all about reversing aging. He is a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School. Uh, and uh, really, in my view, probably one of the premier scientists in the world at actually reversing aging. We'll go into more details on that. But actually, George wrote the foreword for James' book, and they're, they're really close collaborators. And uh, it, I believe that you stayed in the book. You had, At the time, you were considering doing a PhD program. And then why, did, why didn't you say it yourself? Because I'm just going to uh, paraphrase what you already know. 
well, I first approached him with the idea. I had been going to uh, a lot of medical conferences and scientific conferences on aging and what I thought was going to be the most powerful tool for reversing aging that I could tell, uh, you know, that, that would be in a path that uh, if I spent the next five or 10 years working on would be useful um, was to take autologous stem cells, those are ones from ourselves, and to genetically alter them so that we would get rid of our genetic predisposition to various diseases and improve our odds of not being diabetic, of not having Alzheimer's, of lowering our cholesterol, and all the things that are landmines uh, in our life to help shorten our life. And eventually, through this supercentenarian study, to figure out how those people make it to 110, still riding bicycles, taking world cruises, often working, driving their own cars, et cetera. Yeah, so it might be a good tangent to, well, I guess what I wanted to, to say that before we go into this with the super centenarians is that you asked George if you should do a PhD program and he said, are you crazy? Because <laughs> he, he mentors a lot of PhD students. And so just tell him what uh, he told you. Tell us what he told you. So um, uh, we were a couple years into the supercentenarian project and um, I was starting to open my own lab. I started a vivarium and eventually uh, had 1200 mice that I raised by myself and a small lab with a couple interns. And, um, and at that time I approached George and asked him, uh, do you think it would be um, beneficial to my um, credibility and career and knowledge to um, enroll in a PhD program. And, uh, and George kind of looked at me and said, you're doing projects that grad students would cut their, would uh, give their right arm for. Um, you're already reading 10 to 20 scientific papers a day and you're involved in writing up research papers. Um, this is what a scientist is. This is what uh, they do. You don't need to, to go um, work for someone else to learn these processes. Um, so I, uh, I stuck with what I was doing. Yeah. So that's a real strong testimony to the fact that you don't need to have formal uh, accreditation. I mean, it's a nice process and it certainly provides many people who aren't as gifted and disciplined as you to do this process to get some of those skills. But even if they do that, there's no assurance they're going to achieve the level that, that you, you have. So congratulations. You're a rare bird, but uh, an inspiration to others that know that this path is possible. So why don't you expand a bit on the supercentenarian project? Because I think it's intriguing. First, describe what a supercentenarian is. Uh, so I came across papers in my early research from uh, near Barzilai's uh, lab at um, Albert Einstein Medical School and uh, Tom Pearls, uh, particularly at Boston University, where they had looked at um, the health of centenarians and these individuals called super centenarians. Uh, and those are individuals who have made it to and past their first decade. So they have to be 110 years old to be called a super centenarian. And at any given time, there's somewhere between 50 and 80 super centenarians 
in the entire world. Um, Rare so, and in the United States, about 20 validated supercentenarians at any given time. Um, so about, I think it's 120,000 people in the US make it to 100. Uh, but only 20 at any given time make it to 110. And so I thought just reading these papers that they were an incredibly interesting group of people, but it wasn't until I started meeting them in person to do these blood collections and talk to them, find out what their lives were like, what they ate, um, you know, uh, smoking habits, all kinds of things like that, um, that I discovered how really incredible they were. Uh, you know, how they had essentially uh, been what you would consider 70 or 80 year old health up until maybe 105 to 108 and then slowly started aging started creeping up on them and they had no age related disease of any kind and usually died from an immune failure just a month before their, their death so or you know they they came to an immune failure and got pneumonia and and would die in a very short period of time yeah, that, that is an important point. But I mean, you've got to get to 100 first. And if you do reach to that level, then somehow improving the functioning of your immune system is going to be an absolute essential criteria if you have any hope of making longer than that. Absolutely. Yeah. So and, and actually, it's not even over 100. There are many elderly people, 70s, 80s and 90s, where the, it's an immune insult that gets them. It's not heart disease or stroke or dementia. I would argue that in many um, respects, supercentenarians are merely leading uh, normal aging and that all of the rest of us are experiencing accelerated aging. Ah, that is a very good point. And it actually really sort of capsulizes what your book is all about, to help us lead normal aging, which as a consequence, and this is the key because a lot of people get, get distressed. Oh, I'm not one of them to be at 90 years old, crippled in, in a, right. a care facility. But this is free of any diseases or yep. impairments or disabilities or frailties. So right. what did you, what, what, what was, I mean, we don't want to spend the whole time talking about supercentenarians, but you did publish this study. And what was, what were the most uh, dramatic of findings because you know we read a lot of these stories a person 105 and what their their tips and successes were for living that long but you know i mean you interviewed most of these people so what did you come up with well we we know from work that's been done uh by the two researchers i mentioned near barzillai and tom pearls that um the siblings of supercentenarians have a 17 times greater chance of becoming reaching 100 years old as as normals and uh, in genetic terms, 17 times is amazingly strong uh, uh, gene relationship. So um, we know that this protection, whatever it is, is in the genes and is uh, carried to the offspring and brothers and sisters. And in most of the families that I talked to, there were aunts and uncles or mothers or fathers who would also live well past 100, often 105, 108, etc. And um, uh, again, this, this uh, reinforces the idea that there's a very strong genetic component. Um, near Barzillai, um, 
determined uh, a number of years ago that in women supercentenarians, but not in men, um, there was a mutation in IGF-1. Um, uh, I don't believe it was re the receptor, but it was the IGF-1 pathway. And um, it makes them short in stature, small women. So, you know, five feet is about uh, the size of a normal supercentenarian woman. Really? And, Did not know yeah, that. They're, they're very, very it's petite not, women in general. Kind of like Laurent syndrome in some ways. Well, not quite that severe, but, um, but definitely along the same lines. And in men, it tends to be a growth hormone uh, mutation uh, that similarly makes uh, supercentenarian men somewhat smaller than other men. And, um, and in both ways, um, this is a tie-in, of course, to uh, the switch. It um, uh, limits mTOR and turns on autophagy. So um, one of the things that we did find um, in studying supercentenarians was that um, they very much carry these same characteristics that you would find in like um, uh, miniature or teacup animals. So for example, pigs and dogs, um, we have lots and lots of examples of the miniature version, like of the pincer, for example, where the, the full grown version of this dog lives seven to nine years, but the miniature version lives 15 years. And at seven or nine years, they're still young and frisky and, and doing all the dog things whereas the, the full-size dogs are uh, on their last legs, so to speak. Interesting. So why don't, I guess this is a good time to really go into the switch and so allow you the opportunity to discuss what mTOR is, what is uh, the, be the benefits of turning it on and off. And, and then I think we can dive deeply because I think understanding that switch and optimally uh, integrating that understanding into your lifestyle can have enormous, and actually let me even exaggerate even more, beyond enormous benefits for improving your health and longevity. I totally agree. So I like to start off with sort of a, the 30,000 foot view. And to do that, um, the discussion really has to take into account evolution. And um, TOR, um, from which mTOR also derives and from which we evolved that mechanism, uh, started with bacteria. And, you know, the thing that all uh, organisms need is nutrients, the ability to make proteins, and to reproduce. And when resources are abundant, they do these things. When resources are scarce, which is what nature generally provides, you know, you consume all the resources in the spot you're in, and then, you know, you have to go out and seek new resources resources, um, uh, the organisms that developed ways to uh, hunker down and to protect themselves during these times of scarcity are the ones that survived and we evolved from. So we evolved and carried with us those genes that protected um, bacteria, yeast cells, uh, uh, C. elegans worms, Drosophila, mice, primates, et cetera. They all have a version of mTOR and they all go through this metabolic switch called mTOR and have an 
anabolistic state uh, anabolism and uh, a catabolic state uh, or catabolism. And those- well, well, some people may not know what those terms are. So anabolism is improving in growth, essentially improving muscle mass, where catabolism is breaking down, repairing, regenerating. We're actually not regenerating, just repairing and, and removing. That's right. So catabolism is really the, the phase that um, the cell goes into when resources are scarce and um, the cell is essentially looking to quit making proteins or slow down protein production and not to do cell division, but instead to try and find more resources, which it can do even internally through this process called autophagy. Um, so we should probably talk about what autophagy is. And I like to use a metaphor because we're talking about what goes on inside a single human cell, um, again, evolved all the way from bacteria. And um, basically when these genes get turned on, it creates these little garbage truck-like uh, um, entities inside the cell that um, find, surround, and encapsulate uh, misfolded proteins and dysfunctional organelles, and then bring those to a recycling center called the lysosome, which is basically a big bag full of acid that breaks down uh, these proteins and organelles into their component parts, and then releases it back into the, um, to the cell. Um, so uh, you end up with these dysfunctional, unusable, misfolded proteins, which uh, the cell can make, uh, being turned back into uh, amino acids that can be rebuilt into new proteins that are better. Uh, and replacing organelles like mitochondria um, that are dysfunctional, for example, they produce too many free radicals, um, ROS, um, uh, then specifically, uh, autophagy will be uh, directed to and take these high-producing, um, um, highly dysfunctional mitochondria to the lysosome to be broken down and to be gotten rid of. And this is very beneficial for the cell. It's beneficial for the organism. And it's something that obviously sounds like we would want this thing turned on on a regular basis. Now, the problem is that like all other organisms, humans for most of our evolutionary history encountered this feast or famine state. And only until really recently, like literally the last 150 years, has food production, industrialization uh, of farming and livestock management and refrigeration and all these wonderful technological achievements have made it possible so that people in the West in particular have a never ending abundance, mostly of foods that we didn't evolve to eat in the first place. Yes, indeed. So, so that process of breaking down the mitochondria is called mitophagy. And the key is to cycle back and forth between the two. And, you know, you learned about mTOR long before I did. My mentor that initially introduced me to that 
concept was Ron Rosedale and actually introducing to me a fear of mTOR that got me into serious trouble because uh, I just thought that you should be active, you've been inhibiting mTOR continuously. And I was down to like 60 grams of protein. I was very cachectic and getting frail. And I kind of learned through heart, the life that that was not a good approach and it's not the approach you advise in your book, but because you have to cycle back and forth between the two. That's right. So why don't you, why don't you go take it from there? Um, Well, you have uh, this state in nature where, um, um, you know, humans evolved with seasons mostly. And during the summer months, uh, uh, you have vegetation and fruits and nuts and grains and all these things occur in, in abundance and life is good and everyone's um, um, fed and happy. And then um, the body puts on more weight, it gets more muscle, and then you enter, for most uh, European descendants, a very long cold winter. And of course, you know, 10 to 20,000 years of human evolution in Europe uh, also involved, you know, these monstrous glaciers and uh, incredibly cold weather that, um, you know, prevented us from having this sort of abundance that we have um, or think about having um, as even Paleolithic people. So um, uh, of these two states, the anabolism, as uh, you rightly pointed out, is for the cell growth, and that includes uh, stem cells. So the stem cells replace your muscle cells with satellite uh, precursors. Um, you have cardiomyocytes, which replace heart tissue. You have chondrocytes that replace uh, cartilage in your body, on and on and on. And all of those require that mTOR is turned on. So if you learn about mTOR and you say, well, I don't want cancer and turning on mTOR full time and really keeping autophagy off and mTOR on leads to cancer, then I want to do the reverse. What you end up doing is not having a strong population of stem cells, not replacing uh, damaged tissue or muscle wasting. Uh, and you end up, uh, losing muscle mass, sarcopenia. And I, I experienced this myself. Um, mm-hmm. I think we talked about this when we met that um, I was on a, a vegan version of the ketogenic diet for five years. And I was doing this as a self-experimentation and a way of inducing autophagy. And I ended up losing a lot of muscle mass. Um, but as soon as I recognized what was going on and um, really thought about the literature and what this meant, um, I realized that, that uh, I was forgoing the thing that, that nature had previously uh, required, which is that you go through these feasts. And one of the things that I've concentrated in this book in doing is not only discussing the molecular mechanisms of mTOR and autophagy, but also showing these large populations that we have in the world from not only hunter-gatherers that are still alive and, and living that kind of lifestyle, but more importantly for us in the West, 
um, people in Japan, in California, in uh, Greece and Italy that are currently living lifestyles that are modern except for their food intake and are in fact living um, much longer, much healthier, not getting exposed to these diseases of civilization as it used to be called, um, in which um, I don't know if you've come across this, but uh, in the mid 1800s, um, uh, European and American uh, countries sent doctors all over the world um, to colonies and to explore things. And they came across populations that were not consuming sugar and flour and lots of meat. And, you know, they were following more of the traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyles. And these people didn't have diabetes. They didn't have Alzheimer's. Uh, they weren't getting hypertension and, um, and cancers. And so they started referring to this difference as our having these diseases of civilization and the native um, uh, hunter-gatherer populations that they were meeting not having them. And as soon as they saw those populations, whether it was um, Okinawans uh, from the Big Island uh, in, in Japan, uh, coming to places like Hawaii and the mainland of Japan, and all of a sudden being exposed to um, um, different ways of eating, grocery stores and fast foods and things like that, or you know, people in Papua New Guinea going to New Zealand and all of a sudden being um, in the middle of an urban center with all of these um, food possibilities. They saw those people immediately um, gaining weight, becoming obese, um, getting diabetes and later dying from all of our diseases like cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, yeah. um, cancer, et cetera. Yeah, so let, let me just summarize that because I think most people on our site already know this because uh, we've talked a lot about it previously about the work of Dr. Weston Price, who was a dentist in the uh, early 20th century who went around the world and, and documented those things. And we actually have a 21st century version of Dr. Price, which is uh, Chris Kenobi, who's an ophthalmologist. Price was a dentist. Kenobi's an ophthalmologist, and he, he's actually plans are going around the world and documenting age-related macular degeneration, which that, I mean, he proved very conclusively, wrote an extensive book on this, that it did never existed before like 1900 or 1920, and, it, and concluded that it was just a result of processed foods. That's all it was, it was processed foods, primarily processed oils. And, you know, extend, he's extending that to heart disease and cancer, which didn't exist in the same time frame. I mean, it was there, but it's very, very rare disease. So I think we're all in agreement that's not the issue. So we know, you know, we, we kind of beat on it on our site too, and we've been writing about that for many years. What I want to focus on are the things that haven't been done that's the 21st century tweaks that we can do to improve this. So yes, stay away from processed foods. If you want to have any hope of living long and healthy, you've got to avoid them like the plague. Well, and I think for a lot of people, they really do need to learn the um, – molecular mechanism, this evolutionary mechanism that we have, how it works. And then two weeks from now or, or months from now, when they see a television commercial about dairy or, you know, uh, a cheeseburger, a pizza or something like that, they'll know what those ingredients are going to do to them and how those ingredients are going to affect that switch and to ruin their chance of keeping this balance 
the cycling of mTOR and autophagy in the right direction. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. And the, the, and that sounds a very uh, a frightening approach for many people who might be listening to this or watching it. And that's because pizza is the favorite food of America. There's no question. We, it used to be my favorite food too. Uh, but the, 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 the really good news here is that once you apply these principles and you, you develop metabolic flexibility, the, the ability to easily switch back and forth between burning fat and sugar as your primary fuel, then you don't have these cravings. They simply disappear and you have this knowledge and understanding. It is so easy. It's not like you have to have iron will uh, discipline or willpower right. to do this. It's just easy just easy as can be. And it's not something that you have to be afraid of. It's just, you love life and you enjoy what you eat and you just eat healthy foods. It's not a, it's not a burden or yeah. a challenge. We have a whole chapter describing the different ways that you could implement this in your own life. And there, there's no one plan. There's basically guidelines. And we certainly allow, um, because this is how these groups that I've discussed, the Okinawans, the Loma Linda, uh, Seventh-day Adventist vegans, um, the uh, Mount Athos monks who fast 180 days a year. Um, these, these people uh, still are allowed fast, uh, feast days. Um, you know, you can still have your pizza, your cheese, um, uh, you know, uh, cake, ice cream, etc. cetera. Um, but you can't do this day in and day out and you can't leave mTOR uh, essentially on and autophagy, you know, the brakes on autophagy full time. Yeah, so that's the key. That's what I wanna talk about now because I think that's where the gold nuggets are is understanding how do you, how do you what's the best way to get this switch going on and off. And what's the frequency and the timing? Cause that the devil's in the details. And I think there's even more details in the discussion in your book that I really want to expand on here. So I think no one who is rational is going to, if they've carefully examined the evidence is going to disagree with the fact that time restricted eating, which is restricting the amount of time that you're eating your food uh, is absolutely essential to stay healthy. Now the question becomes what the window is and how to, does that window change? So would you agree? I totally agree with that. I'm a huge fan of um, both intermittent fasting, which is really better described as time-restricted dieting. Um, and I personally have gone now to uh, a four-hour window. Uh, mm -hmm. I never was really a big breakfast eater. You know, I have a couple co cups of coffee in the morning. Um, but um, historically, breakfast didn't exist till the Middle Ages. You know, we didn't evolve as cavemen eating, you know, uh, 6 a.m., 7 a.m., you know, uh, breakfast of eggs and toast and jam and milk. Um, and, uh, you know, this side, it, it's literally in the English version of the name, break fast. It, it's the period at which you're breaking your overnight, no, overnight fast. And this is essential to keeping mTOR down and autophagy on as long as possible. And um, I would argue that this is what people evolved to have autophagy turned on every single night uh, of their life. And not just, you know, on occasions when they would like once a year go on a fast um, or, you know, try a, a ketogenic diet for a month and then go back to their normal lifestyle. 
Yeah. So the, the key then is to, you know, get this time restricted eating window and you're, you and I were both doing, well, I was doing four hour window for many months and you're doing it now, but I'm, I'm evolving and I'm thinking that that window needs to change that four hours is okay, but maybe not continuously because I think it's running down the same mistake that, you know, you and I both did because we're zealots at this and we, we thought if a little bit is good, then more is better. So we do like prolonged fast and, you know, we're activating autophagy too much. So the key, the absolute key is, is seeking to identify what the optimum is for each individual. I think there's, but I would, what I want to hope to accomplish from this conversation is to develop, give people principles and philosophies and how they can, what they can use to determine what that is. But some starting guidelines. First of all, According to Sachin Panda, who I think you know well, out of uh, Salk Institute, he's done surveys and found that 90% of people eat over 12 hours. And I think both of us agree that is not a good idea. You are. That that is a prescription for metabolic disaster. Right? I totally agree. Yeah. So somewhere between four and 12. So I think you probably, four to eight is probably your sweet spot. And maybe you can do 10 hours occasionally, or even over more than 12, but four to 10. So the, I've actually just recently come to the conclusion that maybe it's only four hours a few times a week. That's it. And then, and then because I want to go on another tangent, I really would love your feedback on because they're clearly, I mean, even if you're fasting for 20 hours a day with the four hour window, you're going to activate autophagy and you'll get some of the benefits of a multiple day fast. Not as many, you won't. But my uh, understanding or belief is from the literature I reviewed, and I'd just love to get your, your opinion on it, is that when you're in that long fast, that uh, 20 hour fast before you're eating, that in that hour or two hours before you eat your food, if you are aggressively exercising, meaning really nailing the hammer, doing an aggressive workout, pushing it, you are going to activate autophagy even further, increase metabolic markers like AMPK and uh, decrease IGF, or actually might, do, might increase at least IGF in the muscle. But anyway, you're going to suppress mTOR even more. So you, would it be reasonable to assume that if you integrated a long time-restricted eating window uh, and you it, it integrated that with the exercise that you may be able to achieve the benefits of two to three day fast? I, I totally agree. So one of the um, one of the problems of discussing autophagy is that um, the general public uh, has it turned off all the time. So, <laughs> so, so most of the but most we're speaking, our audience is a little smarter than that. They're not the general public. I, I agree with your audience, but 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 by and large, uh, the average person, you know, who who is in fact obese, uh, obese um, yes. on seven medications by the time they're seventy years old and and has hypertension and all these problems. Yes, um, th- those people got there because they weren't paying attention to this switch, and um, uh, this discussions that people like you and I are having about autophagy. Um, tell people essentially what to do to turn it on, but hasn't really focused in the past so much on the balance, the fact that we need both sides of this. And so I've also concentrated on, um, you and I have talked about this before as well, 
what are the triggers that turn on mTOR? Because if we want it on, uh, then we want to make sure that we aren't taking supplements or doing something else in our lifestyle that tends to inhibit it when actually it's a period of time when we want it turned on. So um, it turns out, and I think you've read the literature um, of um, uh, uh, David Sabatini, the, the mTOR you know, guru, um, that basically uh, one amino acid, a branch chain amino acid named leucine, um, which is four times higher in dairy than it is in human breast milk, um, that this one amino acid essentially locks on um, mTOR. And generally speaking, if you are consuming uh, dairy or uh, animal meat, um, you will likely have sufficient levels of leucine. Now, the cell also needs, for mTOR to be working fully, it needs the insulin levels to exist, which means that you need certain levels of blood sugar um, that will uh, essentially trigger uh, insulin to be relatively high. Yeah, and doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't insulin, sorry, doesn't, doesn't insulin appear to be a stronger activator of mTOR than leucine? My understanding is that um, leucine is almost like a key that alone, without any help from anything else, in sufficient quantities will will uh, trigger mTOR activation and turn off autophagy. But relative um, to insulin, I th it, it, does insulin do it stronger? Or you're suggesting that you can't, even with high insulin levels, you can't activate mTOR unless you have leucine? Uh, without leucine or, or sufficient amino acids, um, uh, mTOR is going to essentially wait, and, and that's what autophagy would actually um, be meant to do, is to create more amino acids by breaking down organelles and misfolded okay. proteins and things like that to supply the cell. So, you know, it's got the sugar, it's got the energy, the insulin receptor is turned on, but it lacks the, the amino acids. So through a short bout of autophagy, um, the cell would most likely have enough to go through with cell division or protein production. Okay, makes sense. So the the recommendation to have i think for the general public is spot on if you're having large amounts of dairy or animal proteins more than 12 hours a day that is just a prescription for disaster but the con the contrary is that's not what we're recommending and anyone who's wise or rational is where the literature is not recommending we're recommending a relatively restricted eating window so if you're only eating for four hours or six hours or even eight hours and you're not and you're fasting the rest of the time uh I think that it would appear that the amount that amino acids from uh, animal protein or dairy, even though they may be relatively high in leucine, become less problematic, especially if you're integrating aggressive exercise in the fasting period, because you're going to drive those levels down. So you're still essentially switching mTOR off in that period. That's right. Um, and if you, if, if you look at the diets of these people that don't have the diseases of civilization, which include, as I said, um, the centenarians in Okinawa, these monks in Greece, then uh, these vegans in Loma Linda, uh, California, um, you, you see that um, 
what's really happening is that they're running through their glycogen stores in their liver and their muscles overnight because we only carry about 800 calories worth of energy in our glycogen stores. And so it doesn't really take that much, um, even you know, metabolically resting like through sleep uh, burns up enough calories that your system becomes in a deficit state and uh, insulin drops, glucagon goes up and you enter this catabolic state. So that can happen, that can happen uh, every day. And I think is probably how humans evolved and probably we want to have happen most of the year. And for these populations that, and you don't see that, you know, um, they have early sarcopenia or other problems, they're, they're still having their feast days. So even the monks that fast, and by their fast, it's a limited it's not a water fast. They're they're having I think seven to nine hundred calories a day on their fast days. Uh, but no, they're not allowed dairy. They're not allowed wine or meat on their on their one hundred and eighty fast days a year. Um, uh, but that still means they have one hundred and eighty days in which they are having dairy and wine and bread and and uh, you know sort of more normal uh, foods. So. Um, this balance is what people have to find. And, and I personally think that it's going to be somewhere along the ratio of eight to four. Um, and whether you um, make that eight days in a row of uh, uh, sort of uh, turning down the mTOR and two days of turning it up consecutively or um, you know, four months on of autophagy and then two months off, you know, repeated. There's lots of different ways to do this. And in the long run, I don't think we know what's absolutely optimal. We just know that cycling back and forth is the way to do it. Yeah. And probably if we keep those periods relatively shorter, especially as we get older, the chance that you're inhibiting mTOR too long goes down. Yeah. So I just had a conversation with a medical consultant prior to our, our interview, and I'm really excited about this. I want to share it with you because I, I think I've developed a new strategy, which is called cyclical time-restricted eating. So, okay. And it looks like this. Two days a week, I eat in four hours. One day a week, I eat in eight hours. And the other five days is somewhere in between. So I'm just... Okay. Yeah, and yep. then and then making very sure that on the tail end of all of those, and I want to talk about this nest is the exercise, and because I think this is a part of the equation that most people who talk about autophagy really miss, and that is fasting exercise. So right before I eat, as soon as I as close as I can to it before I eat, I will do a really hard fasting workout, and that, I do that pretty much every day. Now, not really intense resistance training with, with regular conventional weights. I'll do that, only do that twice a week because you need three, about three days to recover. But I do something called blood flow restriction training. And uh, when this interview comes out, we're going to be th this month in January, we're going to be discussing that extensively. And it's something I introduced you to. Yeah. Uh, the, there's a lot of different varieties, but the form that I think is the best out there is Kotsu. And you've got the, an older unit, and then we just got upgraded to the newer one. And so I wonder, first of all, if you can comment on my cyclical time restricted eating, and then 
then we'll go into the integration with the exercise and the fasting state. Well, I certainly think that that's uh, a regimen that's going to work. Um, whether it's right for everyone more out of lifestyle than, um, than um, you know, whether or not it's the perfect regimen or whatever, I, I don't really know. No, um, how can you? Right. Yeah, but I, but I do think that um, the idea that we cycle back and forth between turning mTOR on and turning it off, and that probably, on the whole, we want it off more than we want it on. Because that's what all the long-lived people have. They all have mTOR more suppressed than the normal people. Yeah, so that's the key. And, you know, the, 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 uh, I'm really excited about this. And I think it's a, it's a strategy could, could have. Because most people, that, like I, I think you and I both, we get a target for a window. And we say, well, that's it. It's going to be four hours every day. Just totally ignoring the possibility that you could have a hybrid system. It has just never occurred to me before I talked to this consultant before that that is an option. And, and, and just knowing how the body loves variability, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, and that sort of goes against my personal nature. You know, I'm one of these guys. That yeah, you and I both. <laughs> has, has a very, you know, like limited wardrobe. And I tend to like not want to think about food or, or clothing, right. things like that. And to focus on... Um, you know, whatever I'm interested in at the time, um, like in, in this case, like solving these aging questions. And so uh, for me, just knowing like, okay, between uh, 11 o'clock and three o'clock I eat, yeah. you know, like, and I don't really have to worry about how much I eat um, because it's sort of self-regulating anyway, um, you know, under a four hour window. And so um, I have a food type, you know, I eat very low glycemic vegetables, but I'll have two pounds of vegetables a day. Um, uh, I vary back and forth between straight vegan and pescatarian, meaning that I eat fish, um, primarily, you know, wild caught, uh, caught, uh, salmon and, uh, you know, uh, um, I, uh, focus on keeping my diet clean and healthy, as you said. And uh, I have no grains. I've dropped grains from my diet several years ago. And I noticed that um, as a self-quantifier who does a lot of blood tests, and now even more so that I have my own laboratory, um, I've noticed that my, my inflammation markers, which were relatively low, have just completely plummeted once I stopped eat consuming grains. Yeah, that's a good, that was a good move. And I think it's wise for most people to consider that option. My first book, the first book I ever wrote, I've written 14 now, was The No Grain Diet. So I couldn't agree more. Um, so what, do, what, what are your comments on integrating the exercise, specifically the katsu? And I know you've got the new unit now. And have, you st have you started using it in the blood flow restriction cycling mode while you're walking? Yeah, so as, as um, you know, I'm a big fan of walking. It's, uh, it's also really good for my mind that I go out on uh, literally four to eight mile walks uh, about once a day. And um, it's really hard to get um, power workout in a walk. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I keep my endurance up in my, my, um, my ability to, to absorb oxygen and things like that. 
but with the katsu, um, it has an amazing ability to actually make my uh, stress my muscles in a way that makes them uh, grow and get stronger and larger um, without really having to do weight presses and, and those kind of exercises. Yeah, or at least heavy weight presses. I mean, you can yep. do you can do weight train resistance training with it with very light weights, literally one fifth of what your maximum uh, lift would be. Yep, I do deep knee bends and that sort of thing. With so you could do it body problem. weight too. Yeah. Yep. So and you you like the concept of and, and agree with it at least in theory that it could pretty significantly activate the benefits of autophagy if you do it fasting because there's a lot of debate in the sports world, especially if you're a competitive athlete, they think you need more glycogen and sugar and uh, glucose. So they'll, they'll integrate that and, and they won't, you can't work out as hard if you're fasting, that's for sure. You're not gonna get as big a lift, certainly, but it may not be necessary. The, the, the goal isn't to get bigger, it's to, it's to improve your metabolic health. Right, and not all sports, um, you know, like sprinting, for example, require like a burst of energy. Um, and uh, again, when you think about the energy that we carry in our bodies, um, a 150 pound person carries about 880 calories in um, blood sugar, glucose, uh, and- Glycogen, is it? And that's split between the liver. liver and, and about 130,000 calories worth of fat. Yeah. And so if you train your body um, to be um, metabolically adapted so that it can switch back and forth between fat burning and glucose burning um, uh, and over five year period of fasting fairly, fairly frequently and being, a, you know, going on a ketogenic diet. Um, I think I can metabolically adapt uh, to the lack of, of um, glucose very, very quickly now. Um, I don't even notice when I don't eat. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's just, my body basically says like, okay, we're not getting carbs right now, or we're not getting, you know, the, uh, energy input that we expected. We're just going to quietly switch over to burning fat yeah. and I don't feel, I don't even feel it. Yeah. So actually the, the, you had mentioned before that you or previously that you were chose a, ve a veg vegan diet and that could be problematic, but you're very wise and you really address the supplementation issue. And even one of the most important ones, that's not really well appreciated in most people who choose that path. I mean, most people get the B12 right uh, uh, and the DHA, but they miss important nutrients that they're only in animal foods, which there's, there's four of them. There's carnitine, carnosine, choline, and creatine. Yeah. So uh, the, the one that intrigues me is the one that you were taking large amounts of basically for a longevity perspective because of its purported association with improving uh, telomeres, which was carnosine. So, and I think that may be one of the most important nutrients in meat aside from B12 is carnosine. And, you, and you're not getting hardly any of it because it's only in really in muscle meats for the most part. Yeah, I do. Seafood, seafood too, but, but, but uh, you were getting a lot of it. So that was good. Um, but I want to switch to a different topic now. And that is really what kind of attracted me to you is this NAD. So maybe just give us a little brief description from your perspective, what NAD is and walk us through like, like what you're doing now. You have one of the, it's a very, very difficult biomolecule to measure. And I want you to describe that process. And you've been like 
going through the last six months to a year to set up your lab to measure this. And so tell us what the process is and tell, me, tell us how many other people in the world can measure this thing accurately. Sure. Um, I'm uh, friends not only with uh, George Church at Harvard Medical School, but also David Sinclair, whom you um, spoke with a couple months ago. And um, I was meeting with um, David uh, in the early summer of 2016. And, you know, most of our conversations are about sirtuins and resveratrol and um, reprogramming of cells. And um, he said, James, what do you know about NAD? And I said, well, I think the only time I've ever come across it is that it's a coenzyme needed by the sirtuin um, uh, enzymes. And he said, that's right. I think you should, you should start paying really special attention to NAD. It's going to turn out to be one of the most important longevity molecules that we know of above resveratrol uh, mm. and um, is sort of um, the underlying factor under a lot of longevity genes, including the sirtuins. And so I looked around in the literature and I wanted to look specifically right away at clinical trials and I couldn't find anything. <laughs> I found a paper from a scientist in um, Seattle uh, from 1961, in which he was giving intravenous NAD um, to uh, uh, alcoholics and drug addicts and having remarkable success. Uh, but that was it. There wasn't another paper from him about this. And uh, I called up all the doctors that I know and um, asked him, what do you know about NAD? Uh, any kind of treatment, you know, any clinical trials, what do you, what do you know? And um, they put me in touch with someone who was doing, um, currently in 2016, alcohol and drug withdrawal treatments in the Los Angeles area um, using IV NAD. So I got in touch with that person, talked to them, and they said, you know, um, the doctor who brought it to America, so um, uh, right after the paper was published in the 60s, um, the company Abbott Labs that was making the IV NAD uh, stopped making it. Um, so it basically disappeared uh, from research in America. It was picked up in South Africa. A Mexican doctor picked it up from South Africa and started offering NAD treatments in Tijuana. And then this doctor in um, Louisiana experienced uh, experienced the treatments um, and um, started using it in their practice. So this person in LA told me uh, the doctor in Louisiana that's been doing this for 15 or 20 years is gonna have a conference in a couple of weeks. And she said, you know, I'll get you invited. So I went to this conference, there was maybe 20 or 30 people there, uh, half of whom were doctors. What year was this, 2016 or 17? Uh, this was, uh, um, Halloween weekend in New Orleans in 2016. Okay. And, uh, and it ended up that I sat next to a doctor um, from Idaho, from a beautiful little tourist town called Fertilane, um, who was there because he was treating patients with IV NAD, not only for alcohol and drug problems, but also 
um, for geriatric type problems. And he had given it to people um, with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Um, there was in fact uh, a, uh, a Parkinson's patient who came to the conference to talk about how it had just completely um, turned his life around. Uh, and, um, and so I, you know, I was talking to this doctor about, you know, this all sounds great, but as a scientist, I'm looking for data and I'm looking for human clinical trial data in particular, not just, you know, my studies. And, um, and I said, you know, I think maybe I'm going to look at doing something like this myself. And he said, well, if you, if you decide to do that, I'm interested in helping because I also agree that there's a lack of data. And so I got, uh, I went to an IRB committee. I got approval for a clinical trial testing um, intravenous NAD in elderly people for a two week period. And um, this doctor in Coeur d'Alene, John Sturgis and I conducted this clinical trial in December of 2016. And the results from that were really remarkable and also remarkable for me personally um, I had never taken a precursor supplement for NAD. Um, I have, um, but this wasn't a precursor. You were taking the actual molecule. This is the actual molecule. And of course, um, being a good scientist, I wanted to tell the patients that I was asking to essentially undertake this experiment uh, in the name of science. I wanted to tell them that, look, I've done it too. And so... Um, the doctor and I both underwent um, the IV infusions, and um, I'm somebody that's had um, um, essential tremors since I was 20 years old. So, you know, my hands would shake like this, and it was just some neurological problem. Um, it wasn't, uh, you know, the onset of, you know, Parkinson's at 20 years old or, or anything else that anyone could, um, could point to. But surprisingly, um, within an hour or two of starting the IV infusion, um, my tremors went away completely. That I had had, you know, for the previous like 40 years. Mm -hmm. And, and um, uh, I noticed uh, later that evening that I fell asleep. Uh, I didn't wake up during the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or just wake up. Um, I woke up way earlier than I normally would, just completely refreshed and ready to, you know, get, get back to work. Uh, and this was the same kind of um, experiences all of our elderly patients were telling us as well. Um, and we had several people that had tremors that went away. Um, we had individuals that... What, what, what was the dose that you were using? A gram IV? Um, so that... We used the same dose for this study that was being used uh, for alcohol and drug withdrawal, which is a thousand milligrams a day for six straight days. Okay. And um, I think this is too much mm -hmm. for people that don't have um, uh, issues that, that would cause incredibly severe NAD depletion. And certainly alcohol is something that uses copious amounts of um, your body uses copious amounts of NAD to detoxify alcohol. So in and of itself, drinking every single night of your life will drastically deplete your NAD levels. And there's other things that 
people do that can deplete their NAD levels. Um, and we, we've, we've seen that even teenagers who get an infection, influenza something, and then start all of a sudden getting migraines that NAD will totally um, prevent the onset of migraines for periods of two or three months at a time. And, um, and people who have had multiple migraines a month um, get on the NAD patches, these iontophoresis patches, and um, they can go years without having migraines. Yeah. So there, there's, there's many, many symptoms of NAD depletion that we're just now learning, and we're finding that um, restoring the NAD to healthy levels gets rid of these symptoms almost immediately. Yeah, but the yeah, thank you for sharing that. It was a great frame for what we're going to talk about next, because it's obvious that there's great potential there, and there's a lot that you didn't share about the, all the other benefits of NAD. But the cost for those infusions, if you because you can get them available today, I don't even know that you need a doctor's order to do them, but they're expensive. They're I think they're over a thousand dollars for an IV. If I'm not they mistaken. They are. Yeah, so that is just not a starter for most people. That's way off their budget. So um, the, that is what, what's driving the push to find alternative solutions to raise your NAD levels. And the problem here is that this is not an easy biomolecule to measure, as I mentioned. So I wanted you to go into you know, how it's measured and how your association with Nady Brady, who you perceive as the top NAD researcher in the world, you know, how he's developed this protocol to measure it and how many labs in the world can measure this thing accurately. Because that, the, the, for, for me, the key is being able, if you're going to have an intervention to use precursors or some other strategy, you've got to measure it accurately. So why don't you tell us about that? Sure. So one of the participants at the conference in 2016 was a professor from the University of New South Wales named uh, Ross Grant. And um, his lab at University of New South Wales um, has been studying NAD um, for quite a number of years. And they pioneered um, one of his postdocs and a chemistry um, technician um, at the university pioneered a mass spectrometry protocol for measuring NAD and it can be measured in blood plasma, in whole blood, and from the peripheral blood mononuclear cells, the white blood cells that you collect in blood, uh, or any tissue. And so this mass spectrometry, which is um, incredibly precise at measuring uh, microgram levels of proteins, uh, molecules in, in samples, um, it's able to measure these um, particular metabolites of NAD because there's about 13 steps uh, of going from, you know, a basic protein like tryptophan to the end molecule of NAD. And, uh, and then that NAD, when it's used by other coenzymes, breaks down into nicotinamide and other uh, metabolites. So all in all, they were looking at about 13 different uh, molecular compounds that were all related to NAD and uh, measuring them. So uh, he put me in touch with this um, 
graduate, uh, I'm sorry, this postdoc named Nady Brady. And I told him about this clinical trial that I wanted to do. And I said, you know, if we sent you blood samples, would you be able to measure NAD? And, um, you know, I told him we were going to have like a dozen or so participants. What I didn't tell him was that we were going to take um, multiple samples per hour for the first like five or six hours. And then we were doing this every day for 10 days. You know? Oh, geez. And so we ended up sending this poor guy 1,500 samples. And of course, I didn't know how a mass spectrometer ran at the, in those days. Um, I wasn't really familiar with, with, I was familiar with the results of what they do, but not the methodology that it takes to run them. And it turns out that um, it, it takes about one hour to run two samples. <laughs> and so I'd given him like half a year's worth of work. Um, and, you know, he had to share that machine with other researchers. And so, um, you know, he got us back, to his credit, he, he worked nights and days and got us back some data uh, within about a month that was really important to us to know. Um, we uh, obtained blood samples from a, a blood bank. Uh, of uh, samples from uh, 20 year olds all the way up to these uh, mid 80 year olds that were in our studies. And uh, we ran those through the mass spec, uh, uh, not just for NAD, but all 13 of the uh, metabolites. And we created um, a graph showing for each metabolite how it changes over age. And it was really incredibly enlightening and i don't think anyone has ever done this kind of a study to show in humans normal healthy humans how nad actually plummets by the time you're 60 years old down to almost undetectable levels by the time you reach 80. and what you and i know and uh, we want your audience to know is that nad is absolutely essential to repairing uh, broken DNA. And broken DNA is not something that occurs once in a while. It's something that occurs 125 times an hour, I'm sorry, a day, in every cell of your body, in single-stranded breaks, and about 25 times uh, per day in every cell of your body in double-stranded breaks. And more if, and you, so, have, more if you have EMF exposures. Uh, absolutely. There's lots of life, um, lifestyle practices and, and exposures that will increase this dramatically. And um, you need NAD um, in order to turn on gene repair. Yeah. And so if this is naturally going down by the time you're 60, it's maybe 50% of what it was when you were in your 20s and 30s. And then by the time you're 70, it's at like 10%. And then at, at 80, it's just almost off. You can see how this huge buildup of damaged DNA in every cell of your body is potentially one of the driving forces of uh, these morbidities that you see with aging, heart disease and cancer and Alzheimer's yeah. and all these things and, um, and, and death.
Yeah, you, congratulations on that study. I believe you were the senior author on it, and it was never done before. I mean, it was so crucial to this work that you establish the parameters of what the aging curve for NAD looks like. It was never done before. But I still want to know how many other labs in the world or the U.S. can measure NAD to this precision? Uh, well, I think there's maybe a couple of other labs other than the University of New South Wales. But I went back, I, I run a nonprofit medical research organization called Better Humans. Um, it's the one that was doing the supercentenarian study. It's the one that uh, I had my mouse lab under, and it's now the one under which I do all these clinical trials and analytical um, uh, lab research. Uh, uh, we went back to our funders and said, um, we're not going to be able to give proper feedback um, in our clinical trials so that we can essentially on the fly determine, okay, this is working to increase NAD levels or, um, you know, they fall off very rapidly after we do something. Uh, if we're giving them to a lab where um, it's going to take six months to a year to get the results back because they just don't have full-time accessibility to run just our clinical trial data. So, you know, these machines are, you know, they run from like four or $500,000 up to a million and a half. And I was uh, lucky enough to uh, have funders that saw the opportunity that if we had our own mass spectrometer, we could turn around this data we could publish papers and, and let the world know what we find out much more rapidly. So we now have our own mass spectrometer. It, it, is, it has been a, unfortunately for me, long and um, kind of stressful <laughs> process of getting this um, installed and set up. They're very complicated machines. They take uh, enormous amounts of time to get exactly right and calibrated and then fine-tuned to do the particular metabolites that um, that we need to look at. And, uh, and now we're going to be in a position where we can do collaborations with lots of labs. Um, um, you know, I've offered this to David Sinclair and, and to others as well who's, who are also focused on NAB um, because we want to accelerate um, this kind of information and to make uh, rapid progress in determining how do elderly people maintain high youthful levels of NAD, keep all of these uh, um, pro-healthy um, anti-aging genes turned on in the long term. And this is going to require um, optimizing or uh, as you and I and others call it, hacking uh, our biology. Yeah, that's what I want to get into now because just as an aside that you didn't mention that you, first of all, had to hire a postdoc to run this machine. And that was like a two or three month process in the process to find the postdoc. And then you had to send the postdoc for like six weeks to, to Australia to train with Nady Brady. And then she had to come back and then you had to get the machine. So it was just one catastrophe after another catastrophe, but challenge that had to be surmounted. But finally it's up and running, or if not, it's really close to it. So you've got the machine and now we can examine like pre the, the precursors like NR, NMN, uh, NAD itself in different forms. Uh, you like that the uh, the patch that you put on, which works, and you you are actually uh, have this metabolic barometer which you referred to earlier with the 
the uh, tremors, the benign essential tremors that, uh, you know, that show, and I think you have a restless leg syndrome too, that, that, that seems right. to be moderated when you get the right dose of D. So you don't need to measure levels. You know clinically when you're getting the level. Most of us don't have that. That's that, that the canary symptom. So uh, the interestingly, we, we, we are in the process. You and I are going to evaluate this very soon, probably shortly after this interview comes out. We we'll, may even know. The uh, actually taking NAD itself, the molecule, rather than injecting it, putting it into a suppository and using a transmucosal to get it into the blood because you can't swallow this thing. It's too, it's an unbelievably fragile and perishable molecule. It's, it's, it is just the most delicate thing. So you've got to be incredibly cautious with it, but the precursors you can, the problem is that they get methylated in the liver when you swallow them. So, you know, you, you know, you don't want to inject them at all, but uh, I mean, you could, but it's less easy. Uh, so we're looking at liposomes and uh, you actually have, are going to test those. You've got a number of, I've got a, I think a half a dozen or a dozen people lined up to test that. And, you know, we've got 40 nanometer liposomes. These are not any liposomes. These are nano liposomes that should get in there. We should have some good results. And I'm so excited. And we could test the other things too, like trans, tra, transrectal NR, transrectal NMN and see if they make a difference and if they, what yeah. the le actual levels are. I'm really excited about this possibility. As you alluded to earlier, um, you can raise NAD levels um, through this really expensive process of taking the IV, um, but then you would have to, even at these high levels, you can restore like a youthful level of NAD very, very quickly doing that with just a single afternoon, um, but it doesn't last very long. Um, so it's metabolized and then you need to do it again. And honestly, no one yet knows how long these high levels of NAD last in individuals or whether over a period of time, um, you'll build up higher and higher levels as you essentially quench all of the, um, um, deferred maintenance in your cells, so to speak. Um, if you didn't have NAD levels and you, and you have a buildup of um, DNA that needs repairing, then NAD is going to be used up as soon as it's available with these genes that do DNA repair. It's going to be used up whenever you get a, an infection with CD38. It's going to be used up by these sirtuins. So um, at some point, we think that the cell will catch up and become healthy and it won't have such a drawdown on, on the NAD levels. But um, right now, the, the trouble for elderly people is that you can take a thousand milligrams of like nicotinamide riboside and it will double your NAD levels. That's, that sounds really terrific, but if you think <laughs> about, and yeah, we've talked about this. If you think about a person who should have levels between plasma levels, which we've talked about, between um, 30 and 60 milligram, uh, milligrams per milliliter of blood. Is it that high? It's uh, actually milligrams, it's not uh, micrograms? Uh, 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 this is of just NAD itself. It's, microgram, wow. it's micrograms of other metabolites. Okay, I did not uh, know it was that high. I, I knew oh, and I forgot right. against milligrams. Um, milligrams, that's a lot. Uh, no, I'm sorry, for uh, 
for nicotinamide, it's milligrams. For for NAD, it's micrograms. Okay, I thought it was micrograms. Metabolites, it's okay. you know, it varies between micrograms and milligrams as okay. to what they are. Um, so it is a, a a relatively minuscule amount that we're measuring, but um, this uh, this range uh, of you know youthful versus elderly, where the elderly is almost undetectable. They need to increase their levels by ten or twenty times. Maybe so even a hundred. Maybe even a hundred. Yeah. Uh, if you you know if you take uh, this precursor for six months, it will double your levels. <laughs> We're still tremendously depleted. Yeah, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. Yeah, and thanks and, to you, we uh, wouldn't know that if it wasn't for your landmark study. Well, thank you. Um, it really opened our eyes to the fact that um, to take a sufficient dosage so that you would get um, physiological effects from it, a lot of these people would have to take four or five grams a day, at least for some short period of time. And the way they're priced right now, that would be exorbitantly expensive for most people to add a supplement that would be like $50 a week. So, um, but it's not even a price issue. It's, it does it work because at those levels, it's not going to get into the blood. It's going to be the myth, the liver is going to methylate it and you won't, you won't get those increases. I, 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 you and I have talked a little bit about this and, and I haven't done plasma level measurements or whole blood and intracellular me measurements, but I know that when, um, when my restless leg syndrome or tremors start reappearing, because I haven't been keeping up with um, taking the patches or, or IV, then um, it takes me about two to three grams of, uh, of nicotinamide riboside for the, for the symptoms to go back away. That's interesting. Have you but I'm also, you know, I'm also somebody that had completely restored their levels and sure. kept them high. So I'm not severely depleted the way maybe a normal 64 year old 70 year old or 80 year old would be yeah have you tried the liposomal nmn yet in that scenario so i am I'm, I'm off everything i'm not taking any uh, uh b vitamins of any kind or uh you know no, niacin which is a precursor nicotinamide um anything that would raise my level so that um when um, our postdoc is ready and our machine is finely tuned, I can take this new um, liposomal okay. and then yours and measure before and after levels because I, I want to try it in myself as well. Okay. All right. Good. All right. So it's exciting news. I, I, I thank you for sharing that backstory. It's so important. Hardly anyone knows it, but I think you're really the key because, you know, let me just give you the sequencing here. You've got to eat right. You've got to avoid processed foods. You have to exercise, ideally integrating the exercise in the fastest state so that you can do a few things. Obviously, we talked about increasing autophagy, but what you may not talk about, understand, and now that we've had the NAD discussion, you can appreciate this, is that the exercise and the time-restricted eating will both increase by about 30% NAMPT. What is NAMPT? It is the rate-limiting enzyme for the recovery of NAD, NAD from is breakdown metabolic breakdown product, which is nicotinamide. So you're going to increase your NAD levels significantly without any precursors, without any NAD supplements, just by doing those things. It doesn't cost anything. In fact, right. most people, 
it's cheaper than nothing because you're you're eating less food so it's great so but the, so but once you reach that level i mean that's the first step you got to do those things then you can go to the nad's and then if you want to go so you've got everything done you've got the exercise the diet you've got the nad which i think is the next step that's step number two get the nad right get your nad levels and we don't know what it is you're going to help us figure it out within next year maybe sooner but then what I'd like to, you know, before we sign off, I really want your comments because you, David Sinclair, George Church, in my view, are the guys that are going to help us understand how to reprogram the cells. I want you to explain to people that that technology exists today. If for some reason you are especially motivated, you want to do it yourself, you could do it. It is not illegal. You can cellularly reprogram your cells. I would not recommend it until they do the research, but the technology is this. It's called CRISPR, and it's relatively easy and straightforward and not really expensive. So why don't you talk about that whole strategy and what you perceive is going to happen in the, in the near future, whether it's five years, 10 years, 20, it's somewhere down that range. What's going to happen after we've got the diet optimized, the exercise exercise, the NAD optimized? What is it, what is it with, the, what's the approach with cellular reprogramming? Well, so um, you know that as, um, as researchers really started thinking about aging um, and they started uh, understanding the Hayflick limit, for example, and that cells, normal somatic cells did not have infinite lifespans, that there seemed to be clocks that regulated them and at a very particular pre-programmed time, these cells would go through apoptosis and die, or they would stop replicating. That, um, you know, they scratched their heads and basically said, but wait, the egg cells from females and sperm from males are, are as old as the parents. And when they unite, they make a baby that um, has a whole new fresh lifespan ahead of them. The baby's not born as a 40 year old parent you know, with those genes and, and that, that uh, burden, they're born uh, with a clean slate. And so various researchers uh, started looking at what was it in embryos that was triggering this, turning this egg cell uh, from a 40 year old egg uh, into essentially a brand new fresh, you know, baby and, um, the person for whom that discovery is named, uh, Dr. Yamanaka in Japan, discovered that four particular uh, genes producing uh, proteins uh, were responsible in the egg. Um, and that if you turn those genes on in any cell, if you took uh, skin cells from you and you turned those four genes on in that uh, cell for a period of time that it would revert to a pluripotent stem cell. And that's the, that's the cell which makes um, the entire human other than the placenta and umbilical cord, which then you have to go back to the totipotent uh, stem cells to, to have that encompassed. But it makes, it makes the whole baby and it makes them with um, relengthened telomeres, um, and with epigenetic age, meaning that the expression uh, that's allowed on their genes 
controlled by uh, methylation sites on the, on the backbone of the DNA, that those are also young. And as we age, our telomeres shorten and our methylation patterns change. Some become more methylated and some less. And as a result, genes um, that should be turned on or we would like turned on for our health and longevity get turned off as we age. Well, it turns out that not only can you do this, what's now kind of referred to as total reprogramming, where you use these Yamanaka factors to create induced pluripotent stem cells. But if you do it with fewer than the four Yamanaka factors, or you do it with uh, less time, so you expose them to these genes, proteins for um, only five or fewer days rather than five to eight days, which is required for pluripotency, then what you end up with is something called partial reprogramming. And in that case, the fibroblast doesn't turn back into a stem cell. It stays a fibroblast, but it does reset the methylation clock. And so um, if you've heard of uh, Steve Horvath, a researcher at UCLA, who you work with? Have you published papers with him? Have you published papers with Horvath? Um, we're doing research with him right now, and we have a paper um, that's being submitted to journals right now regarding the methylation patterns of supercentenarians. Oh, that'll be, you um, got to send me a draft of that one. And he's looking at the methylation patterns that result from the kinds of anti aging clinical trials we've been, been engaged in for the last couple of years. Because there's evidence from uh, sort of mock uh, methylation profiles like uh, Morgan Levine's uh, phenotypic age calculations that use um, um, biomarkers from blood tests rather than methylation profiles um, that we are turning back the epigenetic clock in some of these um, even short-term uh, anti-aging therapies that we've been testing. So now Steve is um, running methylation profiles for us and will tell us truly whether we are reducing the risk of morbidity and mortality uh, with these interventions. And what, and what, are, what, have, are some, what are some of these interventions? Are these the NAD trials or are there other ones? Well, um, we're going to be looking at what happens to methylation profiles um, when we've returned um, the NAD levels to uh, youthful amounts. We're also, uh, so I ran a one-year senolytic study in which we gave compounds that kill so-called senescent cells. These are cells that have lost their ability to replicate and they go into this state called senescence in which they basically send out these pro-inflammatory cytokines and they try and get rid of whatever might have environmentally affected them to, to, um, to have uh, uh, essentially DNA mutations that cause them to fail to go through these replication cycles. And um, as we age and these senescent cells build up, um, they produce large amounts of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And because fat tissue um, is one of the main tissue types that um, go into this senescent state and give off these 
pro-inflammatory cytokines and lots of people have uh, vascular adipose tissue, VAT, which is fat cells that are surrounding their essential organs, that means that you're essentially thinning off inflammatory um, signals to all your organs and you're causing them to malfunction and to think that something's wrong and it puts you in a chronic state of inflammation and causes dysfunction in all of your body's organs. So um, researchers from the Mayo a good, a good reason to be lean. Absolutely. You definitely, um, you know, one preventative factor here is keeping your BMI down and specifically going and getting something like a DEXA scan that will tell you how much um, uh, vascular adipose tissue, VAT, you have, um, in, you know, in your central cavity around your organs and to specifically lose weight until you drop those pounds. Because just dropping, you know, five or 10 pounds of, um, of fat, if it's not coming off the, your belly fat area, which is where this VAT is located, that's, that's not gonna protect you from these senescent cells damaging your organs. So uh, the Mayo Clinic uh, did some experiments, found a combination of a particular nutraceutical or um, uh, flavonoid called quercetin and a chemotherapy adjunct drug called desatinib, that those work together to kill off senescent cells uh, very well. And they did experiments in mice and um, they found that they could, they could kill off um, a very large percentage of these senescent cells and that um, the mice would recover from the problems caused by both cognitive um, and other health problems caused by this you know, chronic inflammation of senescent cells. Um, so, and I think uh, Kirkland was the senior author on that, and I think he's also published this year two clinical trials in humans that in and, and, uh, individuals with uh, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, I believe, and they got significant right. improvements. That's right. So we, um, this doctor and I in um, uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, John Sturgis, um, we got IRB approval to um, gather together 30 patients who had osteoarthritis and uh, two of whom had uh, pulmonary fibrosis and to give them over the course of one year period, three doses of this desatinib and quercetin. And um, the effects were really remarkable. Um, so we had people that were literally uh, having to walk upstairs sideways because <laughs> their, their joints hurt so badly or their joints would just give out in the middle of a step um, who had, you know, uh, corkscrew fingers and we're constantly having to um, massage their hands to keep the arthritic pain down. Um, they have this uh, like uh, vastly uh, diminish in two to three weeks. And now, I, uh, I've got a question for you on the senolytic therapy. Yeah. Does it make sense to integrate that with uh, time restricted eating or even uh, fasting? So in other words, you want to have, do you want to have autophagy activated when you're administering the senolytics or it doesn't matter? There's a different mechanism. Well, for purposes of our scientific study, you know, um, in science, you want to keep your variables down to 
um, the ones that you're studying. So we haven't combined it with other um, treatments, but so certainly turning on autophagy at the same time um, makes a great deal of sense. Also, uh, making sure, so one of the main causes of senescence and early senescence of cells uh, is DNA damage. And so that also means that if you have low NAD levels, you can help rectify this. And if you've already gone through a period of time with NAD deficiency and you have lots of DNA damage, then, um, and you're, and you have a buildup of senescent cells, if the levels are really high, um, you actually want to get rid of these senescent cells before you take NAD. Um, now, we've only come across this clinically in a few people that had such high levels of senescent cells and SAS, that's these yeah. uh, yeah. cytokine production. Are, are you measuring the cells directly or the SAS, which are the cytokines? Because it would seem to me that it might be hard to measure. We're measuring the pro-inflammatory cytokines right. um, with immunofluorescent beads. Okay. And so we're using you know, antibodies that attach to them, and we can measure it in the blood plasma. And this is something, again, pioneered by the Kirkland Lab at, at the Mayo Clinic. And you know, we're, we're incredibly indebted to people like this who have made these discoveries. And we're just essentially doing the translational work. We're taking some of their discoveries and trying to get it into clinical trials and to test it on people rather than mice as quickly as possible because my mother has uh, osteoarthritis. Um, she had both of her knees replaced. So I know what it's like for individuals to go through the suffering of osteoarthritis. And I wanted to see, you know, rather than waiting 10 years to hear about FDA trials and, and approvals, whether this would be something that we could use right now to hack aging and to improve our chances of not having these debilitating um, um, morbidities. So for example, you know, you and I both know that you need exercise in order to get ENAMP, um, endothelial NAMPT and raise your NAD levels and if you have osteoarthritis and your joints hurt, you're not going to exercise, or you're you're unless you, know, you do unless you do katsu. <laughs> well, even then, it's going to be pretty painful for, yeah. for people with very severe osteoarthritis, and of course, it it carries along with it additional health problems that we just want to eliminate. So, doing all these things, um, uh, even as a preventative. Um, is, you know, what we're aiming at. And we're trying to come up with strategies that dovetail together, that reinforce each other, that protect our genome, that keep our methylation patterns uh, youthful, um, that don't essentially accelerate aging. And then another part of my lab is working on altering primarily stem cells, and we're focused on bone marrow stem cells, so that we can essentially improve them genetically. So just to give you uh, an example from my own uh, genetic uh, profile, which I know because of his whole gene, genome sequence, I was lucky enough to have a 102-year-old uh, aunt who was very healthy uh, until around 102, she was moved to a, um, a nursing home and then she died very rapidly after that. 
Um, uh, but I had her whole genome sequenced as well. And it turned out that um, I have a 33% greater chance than normal of being diabetic. She has a 18% um, uh, reduced chance of being diabetic than normal. Well, that's that's a 50% difference, basically, between my 102-year-old aunt's genes and mine. And yet, 50% of all of our genes are the same between, you know, my aunt and, and I. So I know that if I were to make these, these uh, and this, this boiled down to only changing uh, three out of eight genes. So by only changing the letters, one letter each of three genes, which easily done with CRISPR, um, I could have a 50% change in my genetic propensity to something like diabetes. Yeah. So why that, not, why not use CRISPR to change my stem cells and then put those stem cells back in my bone marrow where I'll, they're now going to be helping I'll, produce I'll, the liver, you, the kidney, I'll tell, you one, I'll tell you one night from my perspective, because I think that's a poor analogy because diabetes is so easy to treat. I am confident you will never get diabetes. There's not a doubt in my mind. You're just not going to get it. But a better analogy might be things like, I think that George is working out, like increasing these incredible antioxidant genes like FOXO3, you know, and getting multiple copies of those to go in and really uh, address endogenous uh, oxidative, excessive uh, oxidative stress when needed, not continuously. So, I mean, but we don't uh, know. That's the whole thing. Is they, they got to Absolutely. Do those, those, you and I, you and I could talk all day long about molecular mechanisms and protective um, enzymes and things that we would want to turn up. I've tried to come up with some um, sort of uh, relatable changes that if you did them to the population at large, for example, you could nearly wipe out diabetes by yeah. just a gene change. And we certainly know that there are people who can consume vast amounts of carbohydrates and, and sugars and still have blood sugar in the 70s and 80s and you know seem to be relatively uh, impervious to diabetes. Um, so why not in the long run make sure everybody's just born with these beneficial genes? Yeah, that might be, but I, we got to work the details. But the point is, is that the technology exists. This is not something that's needs to be this is a futuristic vision or dream this is reality today that's so right. the details are that we have to work out what it is because you could create something that's far worse than than uh, beneficial so anyway thank you for going into that one final question before we leave because uh, i know this is turning into a long uh, interview but uh i just want you to go over the details it really impressed me in our first meeting because people don't know the behind the source uh the Re reality of many of these research labs that are that are involved in anti-aging and pushing the limits like you are and seeking to minimize the translational period from once something is discovered before it's integrated into clinical medicine that most of these labs are really doing it to produce a product that they can sell that many of these labs are funded by VCs venture capitalists that are really on a mission to develop a product and they're motivated more by finances than they are motivated about 
finding the solution like you are, which impressed the hell out of me when we met, because you are the rare bird who is doing this for the right reasons. Well, I think a lot of, uh, so um, as you know, I went to law school in the Bay Area. I, I've lived there um, um, a good portion of my adult life and um, have a lot of friends from the Bay Area that are fellow um, anti-aging researchers. And, uh, and these are by and large younger guys that are just out of, out of um, grad school and starting their own biotech companies. And they get into this with the kind of um, uh, philosophy that you and I have, which is that we want to see not only for ourselves and our family, but for humanity in general, um, doing away with the suffering and morbidities of age. And as, as time passes, chronological years pass, that our morbidity and mortality rates um, don't increase at all. But the nature of how one gets funded these days is such that um, you need investors in general. Everybody goes the route of setting up a company and then the investors basically say, what's your product? So the scientists are now driven to find a particular product and as rapidly as possible, bring that product through research development and into clinical trials and either sell it, license it, or you know, go public and be, be the company that produces the next insulin or you know, product, whatever that might be. And um, you see this with, for example, Ajax, uh, Unity Biotech, and, you know, companies that have gone into the anti-aging field Unlike the Buck Institute as a nonprofit, you know, these are specific um, for-profit companies that have one particular target um, in, in, you know, their, their quiver, um, one arrow to, to essentially aim at this. And so most of my friends get unfortunately locked into um, spending the next four or five years working on a particular um, anti-aging pathway that may or may not uh, turn out to be all that important. Whereas as a nonprofit uh, and supported by donors that really want to foster anti-aging, I can say that um, we're looking at dozens of different uh, completely um, independent uh, pathways for anti-aging. And uh, let me just interject here. You shared with me, I think like 40 or 50 of them. It seemed like it, your perspectives for the trials that you were beginning to engage in. It just is mind blowing. I mean, it's, you're going to have some massive wins in this thing. There's no question. I mean, it's just shocking what you're doing. Well, I, you know, as we talked about earlier, um, I've read, um, between 18 and 20,000 scientific papers on aging. Uh, I've made long notes about the things that were working in uh, what are called model organisms, like like flies and 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 mice, for example. Naked. And naked, uh, in many cases, we know that these same things should work in humans, but the molecules or or the techniques that were used are generic drugs or um, uh, compounds that that you can't patent, 
uh, for various reasons. They've been known about for a long time, for example. And, and therefore, there's just not a financial incentive for a venture capital company to fund someone researching um, like metformin, let's say, um, rapamycin, both of which are generic drugs, um, specifically for anti-aging. So what you see is that venture capital companies are putting money into companies that want to create novel compounds that mimic compounds we already know about. But no one's really studied and optimized those compounds, the rapamycins, the desatinibs, the metformins. Well, those are drugs, but I mean, you've got natural products too, like fisetin and quercetin. Yes. And and, uh, because anybody could knock that off, um, you're not going to, you might see a pharma company trying to create a synthetic molecule that takes attributes of those and has a particular um, um, molecular, um, you know, benefit similar to what they do. But um, I don't, my, my parents, my, my elderly friends, they don't have 10 years to wait. And then often these drugs are really powerful. And so for a lot of people, they aren't appropriate anyway. And, um, and the, the natural compound or the generic drug that we already knew about would have probably been a better choice. So what we want to do is um, uh, take a lot of these um, compounds that have already been proven to, to work in other organisms, try them on humans, and then if they do seem to work, um, then we go through a process of optimizing them. If they don't work, we just simply drop it and move on because no one's counting on us turning this, this particular thing into a product. So we don't have that weight over us that um, somehow the one and only thing that we chose now has to be um, money and produced. You know the other players out there, it seems like it's well over 90%. What would your guess be that of the people that are uh, incumbent to the BCs? Well, certainly the majority of new uh, organizations that are exploring anti-aging are primarily um, for-profit companies funded by VCs. And there's, there's really nothing wrong with that, but the breakthroughs have been coming from places like the Mayo Clinic, uh, university labs like George's and David Sinclair's and the Buck Institute. Um, so uh, everything that we've talked about today is the result of decades worth of very intense research by hundreds and hundreds of uh, scientists that are focused on anti-aging and who are not specifically trying to make a profit from a single you know, molecule or, or, uh, or cell line or therapy, but merely uh, doing the hard work of telling us what seems to work and what doesn't. And then um, and testing those in model organisms from, you know, um, C. elegans, uh, worms, Drosophila, uh, fruit flies, and, and rodents like mice and rats. Um, and so much of this is already known that we can um, rapidly, I think, uh, qualify these things in humans using these clinical trials and, um, and just simply know, okay, this is worth spending more time on because it, it has profound anti-aging effects. 
or it helps one particular morbidity pathology, um, or you know, this seems to be something where you need a thousand people before you even reach right. statistical significance, and that means that nobody's even going to feel it. You know, yes. if it adds anything to their life, it's going to be negligible. So this is one of the things that the characteristics of that so attracted me to you is that we share the same vision and that is to really radically decrease the time from which something is known for the time it's actually implemented. I'm doing that in the process of educating people, but there's this gap and you fill in that gap. You fill it because you, you've got to do that. Most of this stuff is either theoretical, it's in the lab, it's in vitro or it's in animals and it's gotta be done in humans and you're doing the human trials. So I really greatly appreciate you for that. I appreciate you for writing the book, The Switch, which goes into a lot of the details that we talked about. And uh, it comes out or came out on December 31st. And uh, it's available on Amazon or any of your favorite bookstores. And uh, if you were intrigued with what we talked about in this interview, I think you're going to love The Switch. So uh, you can just pick it up at the bookstore and read it over the holiday weekend. So it's a good one. Thanks very much, Joe. All right. Well, appreciate you. And I'm really looking forward. We're going to probably have you on again when we get this NAD studies done. And, and I, I have a suspicion you're going to be publishing another landmark study in 2020. <laughs> We've got a, a, a number of really great um, projects. And I am looking forward to talking with you. I always enjoy our uh, conversations greatly. So um, thanks for... Um, having me on here. All right. Well, sounds good. All right. Thank you, Joe.